2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll be reading the entirety of this chapter, and I am going to try to handle a lot of it all today. And that's a little ambitious, and if I don't get that completed, I think there's going to be another Sunday unless the Lord intervenes. That's plan A. Plan B would be to finish whatever I don't finish this Sunday, but I'm praying to be able to get through this. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning verse 1. I'll bring out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word declares, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you, when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoice exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. How with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Let's go Lord in prayer together this morning. Lord God, we do thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for the word before us your spirit within us, by which we can uh, grasp its truth, bring it into our very lives, and by his work that, of convicting and, and guiding, that we might walk in it, not by our own uh, wisdom, but by the wisdom of God that you've declared to us. And we rejoice in the privilege that we have of having such liberal access to your mind, through your word. That if it is rare in our days, it is our own fault. We do not pick it up and read it. We do not meditate on it. For these 
times, Lord, we pray for Your forgiveness. We pray that we might be found as a people desiring after Your Word of Truth, not only to hear it and learn of it, but to obey it. To make it who we are. And not just something we do. Lord, we also thank You for the opportunity that we have this morning to gather together in this place. Lord, help us to cherish this time for its rarity. As the world longs after what we so readily have available, a communion with You, with Your people around Your Word, Lord, help us to guard this time in our lives, and our schedules, in our priorities, that it might be evident that this is one of the most precious times of our lives and that we come ready for Your working in us and amongst us and that we might serve one another Lord, we also rejoice in the other opportunities that you afford us to gather in your name. And for our Sunday school teachers, we continue to pray for our our, uh, worship services, for our prayer time, for ministry at the skate park. And as we begin the preparations for Word Life, we do commit these all to you. We know that they are just a fraction of the ministry of this church. That as each one of us go into our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our schools, that we minister your gospel in those places. And Lord, give us the boldness, courage, to communicate you above all else in all that we do, in the manner in which we do it, the spirit in which we do it, in all that we say. Lord, we also continue to rejoice in your great provision for us. Of course, our spirit, your, the spiritual provision through your Son, Jesus Christ, and death on Calvary's cross, above all else. Lord, we, you've also entrusted into our care uh, much more. And we know we are called to be good stewards of that, of your gospel, and of all the gifts of your Spirit upon us of the opportunities to serve you with the energies and our time and other resources. And Lord, we pray that we might recognize that there is a day of accounting and that we might live accordingly, that we might not be ashamed on that day. And that our Savior might not be ashamed of us. Lord, we do also continue to thank you not only for ministries here, before your church universal. We pray for those ministries in many lands. It takes many different forms. And we pray that your people might minister effectually, not in their own strength or wisdom, but by your word and righteousness and truth. But we pray particularly for those that we have the joy of coming alongside of in ministry in India, in Peru, in Haiti, 
globally through GLS here stateside with the Silcots and Lord, we commit them to you. We thank you for them. Pray you might multiply their ministries as they follow after you. Lord, we also continue to pray for the children we support there in India. We pray you might bless their lives and that they might uh, love you and serve you all their days. Lord, again, we thank you for this time. We know that there are needs represented here among our number. That physical needs and financial needs and material needs sometimes are very pressing upon us. And Lord, we pray in acknowledgement that you are more than capable of caring for them. We put them in your hands. We pray that we might be able to set our minds apart from them for a little while. We might focus on the greater provisions that you have made for us by your grace and mercy. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's great to be back in the pulpit and have God's Word before me. We've had some great times of interaction with family and friends, and a lot of that time was around God's Word as we uh, looked at some truths and challenged and, and uh, instructed one another. Uh, but there's just something different about being in a pulpit and having that responsibility in this setting, and I missed it. And if there's any, uh, someone's asking me about getting younger men into the ministry, and my share was that I really don't encourage it, I won't discourage it, but it needs to come from the heart, and it's something that they can't avoid. And uh, so this is a, always a joy to be in the pulpit. But that's only half of it, because being in the pulpit really isn't enough, and this is what Paul is going to begin to share, this passage before us in 2 Corinthians 7, that there is a joy, there is a, an awesomeness, and I don't use that word lightly like our society does, but there is a fearfulness a sense of awe, the responsibility, and the opportunity to communicate God's Word. To stand up and say, thus says the Lord. Uh, and that, in and of itself, um, many times has had to be sufficient to continue to maintain ministry. To say, well, I have responsibility before God to preach the Word in season and out of season, and to do so... Um, with all my heart, mind, soul, and being. And I reflect upon many of the Old Testament prophets who had that privilege of being the prophet of God for their people in their time. But yet knowing, at sometimes for Ezekiel, for example, at the very beginning, that no one will listen. And that had to be sufficient for him. And it is sufficient for the pastor to be able to have a pulpit ministry. It really is. It is sufficient. It is a joy and a privilege and an honor and also is a, something we must give an accounting for, a very serious accounting. The Bible says for every word. And this is why the Bible says, let not many among us be teachers. For there is a heavy accounting. And certainly for Paul, it was sufficient for him. He, it was enough. 
that God would want him to be his instrument, to work through him and, and minister through him in places like Corinth. That was enough. That sustained Paul in ministry. He didn't need anything else to maintain ministry. But then, God blesses that. And we get into this where ministry becomes great joy. Where Paul moves from talking about the sufficiency of ministry into the great joy of ministry. And we find that what he rejoices in, and we're going to find that phrase throughout chapter 7, I I have rejoiced in it, and very closely linked to that is this idea of of a word that we kind of use negatively, but this whole idea of boasting, of, of glorifying God for his work among his people, and his people's response to that work. And so he was glorifying God with regard to the response of the church of Corinth to the gospel, first of all, in his missionary visit, uh, and then to his first letter and their responsiveness to that that he's going to get to in the last half of this chapter. And so he was excited, and there's a joy there that not only do I have the privilege of preaching the gospel to people, but I even get the added joy of having them respond to that by faith believing. And this we want to investigate today is the move and what it is that pastors ought to be getting excited about, ought to be measuring their ministry by, ought to be boasting in. And it is all derived among the flock that God gives them. God's work is tempered by the faith of those who request it. Before we look into this further, let's go Lord in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for the opportunity to look into your word and we pray that you might work powerfully in our hearts and our minds that we might not only come to a mental agreement with what we hear and discern its truth, but that we might recognize its authority. It is incumbent upon us to obey your word. Lord, we pray for your conviction, if that sense, if that philosophy is not in us. Lord, we do commit this time to you. We pray that your spirit might have preeminence. Not only in what is said to guard it, but also what is received. We might focus our attentions upon your word. Recognize that it's truth. And bring it into our lives. We need your help. That's why we've come to you in prayer now. To do this. Lord help us. In Christ Jesus name. Amen. Well Paul has t- given the command really. And the expectation to open up. The Corinthians to open your hearts. We talked about that several weeks ago. In that message. Uh, I'm not going to get into verse 2. And to open your hearts to us. Um, that's Paul's expectation, his desire, his plea for them was that we have open hearts to the ministry of God's people in us, of God's word in us, of his spirit to us, that it requires of us something, that God's 
uh, capacity to minister to us, and yes, I even use the word capacity, is limited by our willingness to receive that ministry. So the Holy Spirit allows himself to be resisted, allows himself to be rejected, allows us to walk not in the Spirit, but to walk in the flesh. He permits that to happen. And so it does bring upon us the responsibility that if we not only that we be more than just hearers of God's word, we be doers also, and that requires to open our hearts to it, which means we have to open our hearts to his messengers. And Paul is the messenger of God here, just begs them. Based upon the promises of God in their life, based upon the expectation of God for them to be righteous, uh, that we complete or perfect the holiness in the fear of God, requires us to open our hearts to His message. That without excuse and without rationalization and without uh, exceptions, uh, we understand that God's message for us is valid. We have a responsibility to it. We will be held accountable for it. And it requires us to simply open our hearts to receive it, even from one to whom it is given. Tonight we're going to be looking at this in regards to Samuel and uh, fascinating passage tonight we're going to be looking at of would you want Samuel to be your prophet? And we all say yes, yes, yes until we realize he's eight years old. Whoa, what? An eight-year-old's our prophet? Yeah, for a while. Until he turned nine. So now we begin to understand this open our hearts to us concept. That this is about recognizing that God's design is to communicate through his agents, those that have surrendered themselves to that ministry as Paul has, and so we open our hearts to it. And he again is still in the context of defending his ministry, and he tells them, you know, what has motivated us? What's our joy? Taking advantage of you? No. We've wronged no one, he says. Do you think it's our joy that we corrupt people? No, we haven't corrupted anyone. That doesn't bring us pleasure. That we cheated people? That we walk away from a deal and say we got the better of them? No. None of that is the driving force of the ministry, of Paul's ministry, or of any true agent of God. They are disinterested in any of these. And this is when we go back and we see Elisha or Elijah and uh, Elisha uh, and his interaction uh, with the leper, Naaman. I don't want any of your silver. I don't want any of your gold. I don't want any of your garments. Just keep them. Go wash in the Jordan seven times. You'll be clean and get out of here. You'll be cleansed of your leprosy. And this is the operating mode of true agents of God is that they are totally disinterested in wronging people, corrupting people, or cheating people of gaining any personal advantage by stepping on others. 
based upon that testimony that Paul had, it is right that they open their hearts to him, to his message. And now he enters into an evaluation of them from his perspective as their pastor, as their missionary first, as their elder, their bishop. He comes to them with this perspective that he wasn't, his intention in writing this isn't really to condemn them. He certainly has some very strong warnings, hasn't he? We've encountered them. Really strong warnings. You know, you need to be holy. Don't fade away from this faith. You know, you, you're, I'm fearful for you. So there's some strong warnings. But these aren't to condemn them to hopelessness, to damnation, but rather because he loves them, he has an expectation of them in totally the other direction. And this is key to ministry. And this is the difference between being preached at and being preached to. Is <laughs> the expectation of the one ministering. On one occasion, Moses preached at the people. He got mad. And he yelled, you rebellious people, then he did an act of rebellion. Do I have to hit this rock and make water come out of it? He was preaching at Israel instead of to her. And that itself was an act of rebellion against God that Moses paid for, that he couldn't go into the promised land. He couldn't cross the Jordan because of that act. And so when does the pastor minister to his people, not at his people, is when he comes to him with this perspective is that I'm coming, the pastor is coming, not with a goal of condemning those under his hearing, but with a goal of delivering those who are under his hearing. That he has an expectation of the positive, not the negative. And I've got to tell you that there are times that this is very difficult to maintain, given our culture. And I see pastors who have fallen into a kind of preaching that is preaching at instead of preaching to because they have fallen into this state of, of just expecting the worst from their people. And I fight that all the time. They have become ministers of condemnation because they have lost their hope that men would respond with open hearts and obedience. And that kind of preaching is sufficient. I'm not going to condemn them. That is sufficient preaching. But it's not joyful preaching. Paul shares that his focus of ministry and he says, this isn't anything new to you. I've said it before, that uh, we're for you. I'm not preaching against, I'm preaching for you. My heart is for you. I die together with you. I live together with you. We have 
to say some difficult and hard things. This is my boldness of speech that I use with you. And I use great boldness of speech. I have some very strong words to say, but they're not against you. They're because I have a great expectation. And where you see boasting, let's think not in terms of, of, uh, you know, putting our thumbs under our arms and just walk around and look at us, uh, that idea of boasting, but look, think of the idea of expectation. I have this kind of expectation of you, that you are a people who will respond to my ministry. You are people who are going to hear the truth and conform yourself to it. And put that idea in here. Paul says, listen, you're my boast. You're my expectation that you will respond and I've told others that you've always been responsive. You're responsive to the gospel when I brought that. Um, even though I came in, in some pretty hard physical condition. I mean, Paul had been pretty uh, wailed on before he arrived at Corinth. Uh, he gets there. He's got fears within him, he says. And, and no doubt, after what he just experienced coming into the city. And he says, I'm ministering there. And yet you responded. And you received Jesus as your Savior. Not because I was this uh, charismatic um, person that, that fit the, the model Corinthian superhero. No. I was this pathetic guy that drug into town with his little entourage and uh, looked like he had just been you know, worked over by a bunch of thugs. And, and here I come. And, and you responded. And I boasted in that. I, I was expecting now that this is the people that will respond to the truth. And then I had to write that letter because you got into sin. And you responded to that letter. You got that sin out of your midst. You exercised church discipline on that one. And you, you set a standard. And you said, well, we've been doing it wrong and we've got to correct ourselves. And you did correct yourself. And so he writes this letter with a full expectation these things are my joy. These things are the things that I relish, that I boast about, that, I, that encourage me in my ministry. He says, when I see this kind of reception, and the other term they use in addition to encouragement is comfort. He says in verse 4, I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. And he talks about in verse uh, five, they're all things he had to go through. Verse six, but God comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. That even the latest word I've gotten has been good. It doesn't mean you've arrived and there's nothing to work on. We've already looked through six chapters of stuff that they need to work on. He's got some very strong words to share with them. But here he takes time to reflect upon the fact that they've always in the past responded when confronted. Now, it's kind of disappointing that they had to be confronted. They couldn't figure that out on their own, that that kind of sexual immorality doesn't belong in the church. That that is well beyond the limits of our liberty because it isn't godly and it's not loving. So there are certainly disappointments that there were these things in our, in the church, in our midst, where they, and that he had to, as an apostle, as a pastor, had to point them out that they didn't figure it out on their own. How immature is that? Yet they responded. 
And Paul says, that's where my joy comes. And so, the purpose of strong preaching, of exhortation, is to bring about a change in people. Its goal, its objective, is a positive one. But to get to that positive end requires some really hard stuff. I mean, you want us to read 1 Corinthians again to look at how hard some of his words were? I mean, that was a hard letter. They responded, and the end result was good. Great. Cause for rejoicing. And so Paul says, listen, I've used some really strong language. And he has done so in this letter as well. But he says, and I rejoice that it worked. I don't regret it. I'm not going to regret preaching what I had to preach, uh, even though it made you sorry. And this is something we're not comfortable with. Let's just be honest with that. We're just not comfortable with people being sorry. First of all, it's rare. And I want you to recognize the rarity of being sorry. And I'm not talking about being sorry uh, publicly and making public apologies and, and all that. I mean genuine sorrow. That we are confronted with sin to such a degree that we weep of the damage that we have done to Christ to our testimony, to our brethren, to the world. That we let the weight of our sin hang on us to bring us to our knees. That kind of sorrow is extraordinarily rare in my ministry to encounter it. In fact, let me share with you what our conditioned response to godly sorrow is. Someone comes up to you, they're weeping because God has brought them under conviction of their sin. They just can't carry it anymore and they're just broken. And our thing is to come up and pass. It's okay. Listen to those words. It's okay. Their sin is okay. It's okay, sweetie. It's okay. Everything will be alright. Will it? Are those really the words that bring real comfort to the one who is broken over their sin? It's okay. It'll be all right. Oh, no. But that is our conditioned response. And I see it in the world. And, and if you ever make kids apologize, and I do this at camp, and I do this at we're life clubs, and I do this in my family, um, and I make the child go and apologize if they've done something wrong. And invariably, instead of saying, I forgive you, the response is, it's okay. And I'm not allowed that anymore. I stop it right there at that point. I says, well, then you're holding it against them. No, I'm not. Well, you haven't forgiven them. I said it was okay. Was it okay what they did? Then they didn't have to apologize. Oh, this is how uncomfortable our world is and how our society has grown to the point that sorrow isn't allowed. To be sorry isn't really permitted. It's not encouraged. It's certainly not applauded. And it's never responded to properly. And if anyone makes me sorry, they're bad. They're mean. If they make me feel bad, 
about my choices. They're the mean ones. Paul says, listen, there was no meanness in what I was doing. Remember? Remember back that verse? Um, We didn't wrong anyone. We've not corrupted anyone. We're not cheating anyone. We're not here to condemn you. Our goal, our aspiration is your benefit. And Paul here describes that process of that benefit here in verse 8 and following. It says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. I don't like writing those kind of letters. And we don't like preaching those kinds of sermons. There's been many a Sunday I walk on and says, I've got to preach a positive sermon one of these weeks because it's just... I just feel like sometimes I walk away, I feel like I'm just hammering people all the time. They're going to think. But it's not because we want to condemn, because we want to purify, to bring righteousness and holiness. They just talked about in the last chapter. We want you to be Christ and His alone. We sing the song, Christ alone. So the motivation for strong words to make people sorry that every Sunday I come in here and boy, I get convicted. Well, I don't regret that anymore. Continue reading verse 8. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. If we deal with sorrow properly, it is temporal. We deal with sin, with sorrow, godly sorrow properly. It is temporal. That is, it only lasts a short time. Why? Keep reading. Now I rejoice that, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation or deliverance, not to be regretted. And we're going to stop right there for a little bit. What a powerful phrase, an ideology that is lacking in our culture. And therefore, it's lacking in the church. To such a degree that we have people coming to know Christ, making sinners prayers and making these professions of faith with absolutely no concept of the sorrowfulness of their sin. None. We talk about the Great Awakening, these times of great revival, and we think it's from this great preaching. Well, it wasn't. It was from people responding with real sorrow over sin. They had genuine fearfulness about being falling into the hands of an angry God. And they knew they deserved it. And they went screaming out of the house, out of the church. No one went forward. They ran out. No one came forward to get saved in Jonathan Edwards' church because he never had an altar call. Ever. They ran out of the church to get saved. Because they were afraid. And they were sorrowful. They were weeping over their sin and its righteous judgment that was surely going to come upon them. And they recognized it and it, and it touched their hearts. And out there, outside the church building, they repented. Did I say they prayed a sinner's prayer? No. They repented. There's a big difference. 
real sorrow, godly sorrow, not manufactured, not something we generate, but godly sorrow, something that we respond in our tenderness to the Holy Spirit makes us recognize our sin and weep over it and anguish in it and recognize it and hate it like God hates it. Brings us to turn away from it. I don't want that in my life anymore. I don't want it to be there. I'm going to run from it. And I'm going to go in 180 degrees the other direction. I'm going to hunger and thirst, not after the flesh anymore, but after righteousness and holiness. I'm going to get rid of what is he calls us, the filthiness of the flesh and the filthiness of the spirit. I'm going to turn my body and my spirit away from that filth to this purity of Christ. This is not just a decision today that you're just going to make. It is the result of godly sorrow. And we have tried to short-circuit the path to repentance by short-circuiting and jumping over godly sorrow. And think we could generate repentance without it. And Paul says, no, I had to make you sorry first so you could repent. And having repented now, you're deliverable. You can be saved. All through the prophets, into Jesus' ministry, they confront them again and again with their sin. And their statement is repent. Because your judgment's at hand. When you think the kingdom of heaven is at hand, don't think good things. That's not a good thing if you're a sinner, is it? If the kingdom of heaven is at hand... What does it mean to you and I what does it mean when we are living in sin? What does it mean when we're not living for God? What does it mean when you're lounging at the beach? What does it mean that the kingdom of God is at hand? It means your judgment is about to come. That's what it means. It doesn't mean we're going to go off and flow into eternal bliss. That's not what the message was. Repent because you know, you're going to miss eternal bliss. No, repent because judgment is at hand. Because the kingdom of God is primarily about judgment. You don't believe me? Then watch Jesus come and see what he has in his hand. What's he carrying? A rod of iron. You guys thought getting spanked with a switch was bad. How, how many of you have ever been spanked with a switch? My hands up, because I've used, I've been had it used on me. None of my kids' hands are up. Isn't that terrible? This is wrong. Imagine a iron rod. By the way, a switch is not a light switch. I'm talking about a piece of tree switch. Iron rod. Christ comes to judge with, to, to deal with men. See, when the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we repent because we recognize that when it comes, I'm going to be judged if I don't mend my ways. Godly sorrow produces repentance that can then bring salvation. You can't short-circuit the process. And most of our preachers are. 
because I believe that most of them don't understand real joyful ministry. And let me explain that. It's not because it's unavailable today. Um, it is becoming increasingly unavailable because of men's hearts aren't open. And for that reason, um, our pastors need to be stronger and they're getting weaker. Uh, instead of being more forceful they're being and more exhortive in their preaching, they're being less uh, as a means of accommodating. And they have uh, replaced what gives joy in ministry. Here's what has happened. And uh, it started not just in the last few years. Um, it was there when I was in school, a seminary, so that's got to be like 100 years ago or something, right? Um, back when I was in school, when I was in my 20s, and uh, we were introduced to this idea of marketing the church, and we uh, measured our ministry not by this process, our people responding with godly sorrow that brings repentance, that brings salvation. That wasn't the joy of the ministry. The joy of the ministry was replaced by large offerings, large buildings, large audiences. If you have a lot of people listening, giving a lot of money in a fancy big building, you're a success and you should have great joy in your ministry. And that was, we were inundated with that message. I have a whole shelf in my library on, that, uh, on books that were essentially their whole ideology is built upon that. Paul's idea of success in the ministry is the joy when people respond with sorrow. When they are broken over their sin and their rebellion and their stubbornness and they are weeping over it that they might turn from it and follow wholeheartedly after God and be delivered from that sin and all its garbage and be brought into this right walk in the Spirit and before the Lord. And, and that's the joy of ministry. And if I had a church of ten people in that condition, it would be worth thousands who were not. If this was just being done in my living room, I would trade it for a church of 10,000 in some great cathedral where they weren't doing that. That's what our pastors have done. We've been trained in that. You get a group of pastors together and they'll ask this question, so how's your church doing? And here's the response. We're going to talk about our giving program to missionaries. We're going to talk about our building program and how that's worked out and our tendencies and how many baptisms we've had lately. Now, I've got enough family members in my wife's family particularly who are in the ministry, and I encountered them this few weeks. This was a family reunion. And, of course, the ones in the ministry are going to come to me, well, how is the ministry going? Now, they're mostly retired now, and... Uh, most of the pastors there, and uh, poor Uncle Larry, he just looked at me, and well, what does that mean? My response to him about how my ministry is going, and uh, he's like, I, I don't, he looked at me, well, how is it going? I said, I just told you how it's going. So does that sound like a bad thing, or is it just something you're not used to measuring? 
We have people who are willing to take a stand for righteousness. But we have a long ways to go. Because we're having a hard time identifying the idols of our age and getting them out of our life. But we're working on it. Well, I can't quantify that. Well, God can. Paul says, my joy of ministry. And I mean, he's using this word over and over and over again. I'm rejoicing, I'm rejoicing, I'm rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. Um, I've been comforted. I am exceedingly joyful. That not only that I see it, but that some other guys see it too. Titus comes up and he shows up and he says, well, they're not doing everything right, but when you teach them the right way, they straighten out and they do the right thing. That's joy in ministry. A church that responds to the truth by godly sorrow, saying, what have we been doing? Why have we been doing it this way? How could I have let this into my life? How did it come to this? I'm supposed to be a child of God. And we let the weight of our sin hang on us, bring us to our knees, weeping before Him, not just so we can feel bad and grovel in that, but rather so that we can repent and turn from it and be delivered from it. And there is no regret in that process. It's not fun at first to produce godly sorrow, but its benefits are extraordinary. And Paul says, when I saw it, it was a comfort to me, and now Titus has shown up, he's told me that he saw it, that you were always responsive, you, did, you, you kept getting into trouble, but you responded. And so that gives me even more joy. That not only that I see it, but that, I, that Titus saw it. That you respond to the truth, whoever is bringing it to you. You respond. You have an open heart, and I want you to keep that heart open. That when you see things in Scripture, you don't say that's for some other time, some other culture, some other people. That's for the guy next door. That's for my neighbor. That's for that other church. That's for the people in the next seat. It's for me. And I need to be doing that. This kind of reaction to preaching is worth boasting of. How much a church spent on their steeple isn't. When we sorrow in a godly manner, here's the evidence of its genuineness in verse 11. If it's true and not manufactured, and you can manufacture sorrow. Um, we see our kids do it all the time, right? You know, to manufacture sorrow. They're not really sorry for it, but you want them to be sorry, and they're not going to get out of the corner until they're sorry. And so they're able to manufacture sorrow in them. Um, one of the, in the media, uh, my family loves Anne of Green Gables and how she manufactures her apology and and being sorry for something she didn't really do. 
So we're all capable of manufacturing sorrow. What if it's, how do I know if it's a genuine thing? How do I, as your pastor, know if there's genuine, godly sorrow that has brought repentance? And here how Paul identifies it. He says, I'm going to observe this. Here it is. It produced diligence. I am going to get this out of my life. It produces a clearing of yourselves. We have got to reestablish our testimony. We have got to clear ourselves and just have a full abreast of it, and then we're going to get it out of there, and we're going to clear our name. We are going, I am going to, our church is going to clear itself. We did it wrong, we're doing it right. That was the past, we are sorry for that, we repented of it, and now we're clearing ourselves of it, we're doing it right. What indignation. I love that. Indignation is just anger. It's an indignation that says, how dare anyone try to bring that back into my life? That's indignation in this setting. How dare you try to reintroduce that into our church? How dare you try to bring that back into our family? How dare I try to reintroduce that sin in my life? A true indignation that is a result of godly sorrow, that has led to repentance, that has brought salvation, is that we will diligently work at this process. It will be evident that we want to clear our name, certainly, and that we are indignant against any who want to get us back into that mess. Don't you dare bring that back into my life, back into my family, back into our church. A righteous anger over the attempt to reintroduce sin. Once Corinth dealt with some, they didn't want it back. We're not making that mistake again. They made a lot of mistakes. I mean, they were in trouble in a lot, a lot, a lot of areas. But once they settled an area, they didn't want any of that back in them. And there's a great Old Testament example for that kind of attitude. And his name is David. I challenge you to go through the history of David and find him not screwing up. He did all the time. I mean, he's a murderer. He's an adulterer. I mean, you go through that stuff, but you know what? what? I also want to challenge you to try to find him making the same sin twice. You read some of those Psalms. You've been reading through your Bible in a year. You're getting almost done with Psalms here. You read through those Psalms and some of those written by him. I'm not letting that back in my life. I did this once. I'm sorry, God. I deserve your judgment. Now, preserve me. I don't want any of that in me anymore. Purge it from me. That kind of indignation. He goes on. What does genuine sorrow look like? A fearfulness. Fearfulness? Not a fear of judgment, but a genuine understanding of our weakness. This is a word translated here as fear, but a recognition of our weakness and that we need to take precautions to guard ourselves from sin. We all have sins that beset us. And I've said this many times in the past, and sins that I have no problems with because I don't, you, know, you might have uh, daily problems with. And sins I have daily problems with, you might say, well, that's a no brainer. What's your problem, Pastor? 
Well, it's my sin I struggle with. But a fearfulness is that I don't, I don't want to fall back into it and I recognize my weakness and my susceptibility. And so I do not go about brashly and boldly just as if that sin can't touch me. But I recognize that I can easily become susceptible to it again and take appropriate measures. And then the next quality of genuine godly sorrow that has brought repentance is a vehement desire. Half of repentance is turning away from sin. That's just half of it. And if that's the only half you come in your life, you will never have a successful Christian life. If the only half you have is turning away from sin. You will always struggle and you always keep falling into it. You're walking on the edge of muck trying not to fall into it. The other half of repentance is to move toward righteousness. To have vehement desire. And this is where David, again, you know, as a deer panteth for the waters, so my soul longs after you. That we hunger and thirst after righteousness. That it is my sustenance that I have this kind of desire that I would rather be righteous than eat. That it is something I long for, I thirst for. I don't want to go an hour without it. This is the result of godly sorrow that has brought godly repentance is that not only do we turn away from our sin, but we long for what is righteous. And not what we declare to be acceptable or okay. I'm fed up with that kind of Christianity that tries to baptize godlessness in the world and call it okay for Christians to participate in. Because it's morally neutral. There's nothing morally neutral for the Christian. Nothing. Not the coins in your pocket, not your car, not your house. There's nothing in your life morally neutral that the world can participate in and you can participate in it like the world. Nothing is morally neutral. There is righteousness and unrighteousness in it. And to vehemently desire for righteousness says that if the world loves it, I am going to immediately be suspicious of it and I am going to immediately consider that I shouldn't be involved in it if the world loves it. The more the world loves it, the more wary I'm going to be of it. The more entertaining it is to godless people, what does that communicate to you? The less you should Involve yourself in it. If it is entertaining to the godless, it should be nothing but abhorrent to the godly. Why participate in it? Why watch it? Why listen to it? 
Why? Desire after it. Rather, we ought to be desiring after righteousness. Things that the world hates. Things that the world wants to snuff out and get rid of and say, oh man, that's just really, yeah, it's boring. Well, of course they're going to say it's boring. They have no part in it. Of what righteousness is and holiness. And then, two more and I'll be done. What zeal, which is going back into diligence. There's going to be a drive. As diligence was, I'm going to get this sin out. Now zeal is, I'm going to pursue righteousness. With the same determination that I'm against this sin, indignation, I am going to be that determined to find everything righteous out there that I can participate in. I'm going to seek it. I'm going to try to find the most godly people I can, and I'm going to try to replicate everything godly in their life. And if I find something not godly, but more godly, I'm going to go after that one. I'm going to seek the most godly thing I can. That's zeal. That as much as I fight and am indignant against sin being brought into my midst, I'm going to be equally zealous after good works. That if God says, this is the manner of worship in the church as we've been studying throughout Corinthians, then I'm going to seek after it with zeal. Not just play with it, not just mamby-pamby here and there and now and again, but every time I'm going to strive after these patterns of worship. That's zeal. And then finally, what vindication. Godly sorrow that produces repentance just as you cleared yourself of your sin, now you can be vindicated in your righteousness. You see how these pattern up to each other? The first half is get out of the sin. The second half is get into the righteousness. These last three are all about righteousness. You want to be really vindicated? That, you, that your sorrow was genuine and godly? That it was the real deal? That it wasn't manufactured or just a product of some emotionalism from a message, but it was the real thing. The Holy Spirit changed your life and the real repentance happened. Is not just you got these sins out of your life, but that you are hotly pursuing righteousness. That's your vindication. You can no longer judge this person, this church, by its sinfulness. We call it the carnal church. It's the once carnal church, now godly church. They've been vindicated because they responded with sorrow. And when Paul writes and says, what in the world are you doing with this sin in your church? They were like, what are we doing with this sin in our church? Oh, we're not doing this. This is terrible. What are we doing? And they're genuinely broken over it. How can God bless us? How can anything good come of this? How can God's word be at work in our midst? How can we reach our neighborhood for Christ with this in our church? We've got to get this out. And they did. And then they kept it out. And then they pursued purity. We're going to have our marriages be exactly what God says they're going to be. And we're going to vehemently 
follow after it. With zeal, we're going to pursue it. And we're going to make this the purest church you've ever seen. <laughs> Morally. Sexually. In the midst of our sexually reprobate city, we're going to be the, the light, the shining brightness of moral purity. This is how they responded to Paul's letter. And Paul says, boy, that makes me joyful. And now ministry has gone from sufficient to exceedingly joyful. I'll keep preaching. That's sufficient. It's sufficient for me to keep preaching. Because I'm not fundamentally driven by your response. It's sufficient that God has called me to do it. And I'm going to continue doing it. With all that I can. Whether it's joyful or not is up to your heart. You have an open heart to God's word and you're going to respond with godly sorrow, weeping over your sin. How did I get into this? There is no way I can call myself a child of God and have this in my life. There is no difference between me and the world. If that's your condition and you bring the godly sorrow that produces repentance, that will lead to your deliverance from that sin into righteousness, that will make my ministry joyful. I don't need it to be joyful to do it. I made that decision a long time ago in my life. I don't need to have joy in the ministry to do the ministry. It's sufficient that God's called me to do it, and I just want to be counted faithful to that task. But to have exceedingly joyful ministry, exceedingly more, and be refreshed and comforted in that ministry is dependent upon the open hearts of the church. Will they receive this word as truth or just, well, that was a good sermon, Pastor. I'll... Uh, I won't remember it by Monday morning, but it was a good thing. Won't change my life significantly. It probably someone over there needed to hear that more than I did. Apparently, that's who you're preaching to. See you next Sunday. <clears throat> I'll accept that. I'll keep preaching, but that's not joy. Real joy in ministry comes when you're broken over your sin. And you leave here all the more zealous for righteousness. That my joy, which is your benefit, your salvation, your deliverance, becomes your joy. When this song becomes your song. I don't need uh, gifts for Pastor Appreciation Month coming up in October. Don't need any of that. None of that will bring joy to my ministry. It is no replacement for you living godly lives. And if this ends up being a church of ten, 
that want to be godly, that'll be joyful. Of course, I preach so that all of you would have this joy.